Welcome to Stay Gold, an Outsiders podcast. My name is Sam Mulberry, and I am joined by... Esme Mulberry. Uh, Esme, what is Stay Gold, an Outsiders podcast? Um, it's a podcast where every week we'll watch five minutes of the Outsiders complete novel movie and discuss those five minutes. Yeah, so we'll dive in. <clears throat> as we go through this, we'll dive into... Um, to what this movie is, but maybe mm-hmm. let's start with this idea of like, um, what is the outsiders? I guess we should probably talk about that. So like, like what is your history? We should say the outsiders is a, it's a novel. Yeah. Um, from the late 1960s by S E Hinton, a 1967 novel. Um, and then it becomes a 1983 film directed by Francis Ford Coppola. Um, how did you get introduced to the outsiders? Cause this was, this podcast was your idea. So like, so, so how did, how did you get introduced to the outsiders, uh, as a piece of intellectual property? Um, in our school district, all the seventh graders read it. So when my older brother read it, I also read it. And then when we were reading it in class when I was in seventh grade, in a month I read it eight or nine times. I've listened to the audiobook twice, and I've watched the movie. Wait, you read times. it eight or nine times? In you a just, month. You just kept rereading it? Yep. Uh, so what drew you to the book? Because clearly you must you must have <laughs> liked it, right? Yeah. Um I don't really know why. Like, I've been asked this by multiple people. And honestly, like, the story for some reason is just interesting to me. I was thinking about it. And honestly, like, it was one of the first books I've read where, like, it was really sad. And the ending wasn't really, like, a happy ending. Mm -hmm. So I think I found that just really interesting. And I also was, like, really interested in the characters because they seemed very real to me. So I just kept on going back to it. So why do you think, I mean, so, so you were reading this in like the year, in like 2020? Is that when you were in seventh grade? Does that sound uh, right? It was 2019. 2019. Like, it was, I think, actually pretty close to when COVID started. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So we're talking like a solid uh, 50 years after the book is published. Yeah. More than 50 years after the book is published. Why do you think this is part of a, part of like the, the middle school curriculum? Cause I will say when I was in school, I'll talk a little bit about my history with this book. When I was in school, the outsiders was not a required reading, but I remember the book from high school or from, from, you know, what would have been junior high for me. Yeah. Um, I think it's a required reading just cause it's like, it's a book about like, teenagers is written from a teenager's perspective all of the characters are kids like i think that's a part of it it's also like it's not really long it's 180 pages so like it's not gonna take forever um and like going through it in school like it has a lot of different like symbolism and literary elements and stuff like that and so it's like one that's you analyze a lot. Yeah, I think I think I would say as somebody who's a who's a teacher myself, like there are certain works that I think teach really well. Yeah. That like there's lots of things you can do in a classroom. So for example, we'll see that this story has a a pretty wide cast of characters. So I think a student would be likely to find themselves in this book. You know, you mm-hmm. may identify with different people in the book like, you know, uh, you may be a 2-bit Matthews, you may be a <laughs> 
you know, Derry Curtis or something like that. Like, like, like you might find yourself in that or find there's family dynamics in this, but there's yeah. also like the social dynamics of a high school. And he said it was written for teenagers from a teenager's perspective. It's written by a teenager. Yeah. When Essie Hinton writes this, she's, uh, starts it when she's 15, finishes it when she's 16. So, yeah. um, so I think that that's a piece of it as well. I think that's kind of an inspirational story for some teachers yeah. to think like, oh, you know, someone your age wrote this and we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that. So, um, my history with this book is that I did not read this in middle school. <laughs> I remember seeing it on sitting in classrooms and seeing it on a bookshelf. I remember people talking about this book and honestly, the reason I didn't read it was because I what the only thing I knew about it is that the two rival gangs were called the Greasers and the Soches, and I thought those names were dumb and like on the nose. <laughs> so I was like, ah, this is not. It's sort of like, like I love the book Ender's Game, uh-huh. but if I had known when I started it that the aliens were called Buggers, I would have been like, no, that's just that's wow. dumb. It's a dumb name. Yeah. Right? So like so so I like I had an aversion to those things that seemed kind of on the nose cuz they seemed kind of maybe cheesy to me. Yeah, that makes sense. So so I I just never read it. I knew of it. I knew people who read it. I knew I I I remembered the book Rumblefish, which is another Essie Hinton book. Mm-hmm. Um but I never read it. So I first read it when your brother was in seventh grade. So we probably first read it around the same time. Yeah. I read it when he was in seventh grade because he was reading and I thought, oh, I'll read this along with you. And I fell in love with this book. <laughs> I will say I, as I have gotten older, um, mm-hmm. I am 30 years your senior. Um, as I've gotten older, I become, I've become more of a crier and like I cannot read this book without crying. Uh, I think I can watch the movie without crying, but I the yeah. book like hits me real hard um, at, at certain points. I also when I read it, I tend to read it early in the morning, and like mm-hmm. I'm think I'm also like emotionally tuned in in the morning in different ways. So like I I this is one that I just know I'm going to cry at when I um, when I read it. So uh, so this book moved me right. <clears throat> okay, so that that's the beginning of this story. Um, Fast forward to 1983, and this movie, there, this book is made into a movie. So, pretty long after. I mean, it took 16 years yeah. between the publication until this 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 beloved book um, was made into a movie uh, by Francis Ford Coppola. Now, when when you had read this book, I think it was when you were in when you were reading it for school that we watched the movie. Does that sound right? Yeah. Okay. And I, so I'd never seen the movie either. I was, it's famous and, and we will get into this in this episode. It's famous for its cast. Yeah. Um, so I remember thinking, wow, what an amazing cast this, this movie has, but I'd never seen it. And then we watched it. And what was your impression watching the, the 1983 version of the outsiders? I honestly thought it was really bad. Mm hmm. Um, there's there's a couple moments that are laugh out loud and they're yes. not meant to be funny, but you're like, oh, this is not. Yeah, good. and like there's this one scene where I will say, I have never cried reading the book. I don't cry reading books, but I get close. The scene where I get close to crying in the book, I was laughing the entire time in the movie. So that shows you it's not good mm-hmm. if it the sad ending is laughable. And there was like. The characters seemed really different. There wasn't really character development. The ending kind of didn't exist. And 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 like with a lot of adaptations, it seemed like it was missing something. Yes. Um. And 
And I will say it also, and this is one of my biases, is it felt like – now, it's funny to say this because the, the 1970s is this sort of high watermark for Hollywood in some ways. Yeah. Right? Um, in terms of the, the, the new Hollywood, actually, people like Francis Ford Coppola, like, help invent <laughs> the new Hollywood. But this has this, like, kind of – it felt that it felt sort of cheesy in the way some other like yeah. kid stuff in the seventies felt, which surprised me coming from Coppola, um, and I just was like kind of disappointed in it because I thought mm-hmm. this book is great and this movie doesn't pull it off. Now you brought up to me about a year ago, maybe. Yeah. You pointed out that uh, that Coppola, as he has done, as he is you know um, getting on in years, is sort of revisiting films from his career. And he put out something called The Outsiders, The Complete Novel. Yeah. So what is that? Um, so the reason I found out about this was I have a friend who also really likes The Outsiders. And we were talking about it. And she was talking about how she really liked the movie. And I was really confused by it. I'm like, why would you like the movie? It's so bad. And then she said that there's a extended version where there's an extra 22 minutes. And she said it makes the movie, like, really good. And I was really confused why it would make it better to make it longer. Um, <clears throat> so the longer version has the beginning from the book and the ending from the book. So you get the character development, you're introduced to the characters, all the characters make more sense, and then you actually get the ending so the plot feels resolved. So although it might not make sense that 20 minutes makes it ultimately better, it changes it so much and it becomes a really good movie. Exactly. And that was my takeaway too, is it changes the shape of the movie. Mm -hmm. Um, It changes the shape of the story. And I actually thought it was great. And and I like when I watched the 1983 version, I'm like, how can this filmmaker that I love have made this? And I watched the the complete novel. I'm like, oh, this feels like I get it. I, the, yeah. you know, I, and I, I get what he was going for. And I feel like it actually really works. So all of this leads to this podcast. So we thought it would be fun to say, let's actually take this thing that we love, which is the book, The Outsiders, mm-hmm. um, and and view it through the lens of Coppola's uh, complete novel. Uh, and I think your you came up with the conceit of doing it five minutes at a time. I think is that no? Not it correct? was you. That was me. Okay, I was gonna say. <laughs> I was gonna say the reason that that I love that idea is because I've always wanted to do something where we did this like micro dive into things, which is sort of absurd because yeah, like. As much as we like the complete novel, The Outsiders, this is not a movie that anybody is, is like burning any calories over. It's like, it would be fun. What if we really dive deep into this and say, let's just bite off five minute segments of this movie, really break it down, really take a look at it, really pay attention to it, compare it to the book. Um, Because I do think this is a, this is an interesting case. Um, I think adaptation is always interesting. Like how do you take a book um, and things that work in a book and how do you try to make that work in a movie? And actually the first, um, two episodes of this podcast, we're going to see that right away. Yeah. We're going to see the things that work really well. I think especially episode two is maybe the best depiction of what Coppola did with the complete novel that wasn't in the other one. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really good example. All right. um, So should we just jump into into the movie yeah okay into the first five minutes so if you're watching along with us remember this is the 2005 complete novel Mm -hmm. um so we're just talking about minute or or second zero to 
the five minute mark of the movie, and we're gonna have a hard cut at at the five minute mark. Yeah. All right. So um, so I I went through and took some notes. I'm just gonna kind of talk through my notes. I want you to jump in. Um, you know, and we'll kind of talk about things as we go. So first thing that I noticed in the complete novel. Uh, is we get this, it starts with the old school Warner Brothers logo, Warner Brothers, Warner Communications logo. Yeah. So not the big WB Warner Brothers shield that they've used forever. Not that fanfare or that that logo, but the old Warner Communications logo, which I remember from TV shows of my youth. So it instantly like put me in 1980, yeah. in 1983, 80, you know. Um, now, we, we also, in parallel to this, we're also watching the 1983 version of this, which if you watch that on Amazon, you get the Warner Brothers shield logo mm-hmm. that, which is fine, but is there something great about this old school Warner yeah. Communications logo? Um, and then from there we get um, uh, uh, the Zoetrope Studios logo. Now, are you familiar with Zo- with Zoetrope Studios, American Zoetrope, any of that? No. Why would you be, right? <laughs> um, so, so Coppola is one of my favorite filmmakers. And in the late 60s, he and George Lucas, George oh. Lucas of Star Wars fame, started a their own kind of independent production company called, I think it was called American Zoetrope. Um, they became Zoetrope Studios. Do you know what a Zoetrope is? Nope. Zoetrope is one of the first movie, um, uh, it's not a projector, but but ways to show a moving picture. So have you ever seen oh. a thing like it's like a carousel that spins and you kind of view in and then it's like all these. Yes. Fo- that's a zoetrope. And there's oh. like a horse running is like a famous one from a zoetrope. Yeah. So that, that, that's what a zoetrope is. So, oh. so they named their production company Zoetrope Studios. Um, and they had in the late 60s like, had, had sort of this plan to say, how can we kind of upend the Hollywood studio system and really make independent films? Mm. Uh, and this is what Coppola really ends up doing, uh, you know, in part in the, um, Oh, really throughout his career, he, I mean, he does big studio movies uh, out of necessity, but then he leverages those successes to go back to Zoetrope and make passion projects. And as we'll see, The Outsiders is, you know, kind of a passion project, ends up being a passion project for, for Coppola. So, yeah. you know, um, so that's, that, that's, so when I see the Zoetrope thing, I get excited because it's like, that's, mm-hmm. that's like this dream of Coppola's to create this independent production company. Um now, instantly the movie's different from the 1983, mm-hmm. uh, the 1983 version because we open the, the 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 theatrical release opens on our main character Pony Boy Curtis sitting in his room writing. Yeah, um, and and he's writing famously the opening lines of the book. Mm-hmm. But that's not where this movie starts. Mm-mm. This movie starts instead with. Uh, the with the opening credits, yeah, which is funny to say, like, wow, that's really it's it actually is a big yeah. change because of because of how we where we see this go. So we get this uh the, the the music is this song written for uh for the movie uh by Coppola's father Carmine Coppola and Stevie Wonder. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll talk over the course of this podcast series, we'll talk about both Stevie Wonder and Carmine Coppola at some point. Yeah. Um, so we'll come back to this, but it's the, it's the, the, the name of the song is stay gold, mm-hmm. which is the name of this podcast. It's also like a major theme of this yeah. book, this film, right? This idea that of like, it is about 
as you grow up, is there something about you that you lose? This is there mm-hmm. some golden piece of you that's part of your youth that that diminishes as you as you get older? And is there a way to hold on to that? Yeah. Right. So so that becomes a, a big theme of this. Um, so we see this kind of like uh, gold tinted background. It's a, it is a is it a sunrise or a sunset? I'm trying to remember in the My book. My guess is it's a sunset, sunset right? Because that he talks the about he, okay. He talks about how he likes watching sunsets, but then later in the movie, they watch a sunrise together. Yeah. So it would make sense if it's either, but my guess is it's a sunset. Yeah. Yeah. Because that, yeah, that would make, that, that would make a lot of sense because there's a lot more talking. So it's like a sunset with like, and this is, um, it looks kind of drawn or, or it's hard to describe. Yeah. It's, it's deeply golden tinted and we have these sort of clouds moving slowly across it. And then superimposed over that are these series of black and white photos. Yeah. So the first photo we see is of the um, the greasers, which is yeah. our, sort of our main characters. And then superimposed over that is a chain link fence. Yeah. <laughs> and then superimposed over that crawling across the screen from right to left in giant letters. <laughs> giant letters. So, to the point where the whole title will not fit on the width of the screen. Yeah, it's like three letters fits at once. Yeah, and it's it's the, it's the the name The Outsiders, which is a really strange choice because yeah. it's like we're trying this is supposed <laughs> to be telling us the title of the movie. It's almost impossible to read because then superimposed over that <laughs> is the the credits right yeah. so we have all of this it's kind of crazy but it works i think yeah so so let's get into the credits <clears throat> um because we'll go back to the photos in a little bit here mm-hmm. but the credits the acting credits in this movie are astounding yeah okay so you think a, a podcast like this why are we spending time talking about the opening <laughs> credits because if you're unfamiliar with this movie your mind is going to be blown by the names we're about to read yeah and a lot of these folks, again, throughout this podcast, we'll do deep dives into where all these people were at in their careers in, in 1983. Mm-hmm. Um, but let me just read, uh, you know, and this will introduce us to some of our, our characters we're going to meet throughout this story. So it starts with with uh, the greasers, and it goes person by person by person, right? Um, so the, the first is uh, Dallas Winston, who's played by Matt Dillon. Now, it's mm-hmm. interesting if you think about the story, if you were going to put characters in order, even order the greasers in terms of prominence, who would be the first person you would put? Yeah, this is actually something I've always wondered about the credits, because like you would think Ponyboy is the main character. He would probably go first. He's the then, narrator. It's he's all the about narrator. him. It's then probably followed by his brothers, and then Johnny, and then Dally. Like, Dally's probably fifth. In the book summary, he's not even mentioned. Okay, let me tell you about how credits work in Hollywood, though. Okay. Of these actors, and we are going to see colossal mega superstar actors, mm-hmm. future actors in this, Matt Dillon is probably the person who's at the highest point in his career. He's probably the most famous of these people. Yeah. So he gets top billing, even though Dallas Winston, I would I would argue, I would put Dallas Winston third. I would go um, Pony Boy Johnny Dally, mm. personally. Yeah, I see you that. Know, in terms of like who I think are central 
thematic characters. I definitely wouldn't put Dally number one, but he's number one. Number two is Johnny Cade, <laughs> who's played by Ralph Macchio. So this yeah. is this is a this comes out a year before the Karate Kid, mm-hmm. which is you know his really really big breakout. Yeah, but again, um, uh, Macchio is sort of further along his career, so we don't get to the Curtis brothers, uh, Pony Boy Curtis and his two brothers next. Um, so they're third, fourth, and fifth on this. Mm-hmm. So Pony Boy Curtis is played by C. Thomas Howell. So compared to Dylan and Macchio, not a, don't yeah. doesn't become as big of a name. But at this time, he was somebody who um, was uh, kind of on par with some of these folks. They, he was looked at as somebody who was maybe potentially going to have a big Hollywood career. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Pony Boy's older brother, Daryl Curtis, played by Patrick Swayze. Yep. Huge movie star going <laughs> yeah. forward. Um, his, uh, middle brother, Soda Pop Curtis, played by Rob Lowe. Yeah. Um, again, has a huge career in the 80s, has some scandal and controversy, mm-hmm. comes back, uh, in the 2000s and has a phenomenal TV career. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and movie career. Like, like, again, mega, mega star. Uh, then we get into characters who are pretty small yeah. characters in the book and in the movie. Uh, 2-Bit Matthews is played by Emilio Estevez. Um, now, what's interesting is in Apocalypse Now, the main actor in that is is, is Martin Sheen. Emilio Estevez is Martin Sheen's son. So mm-hmm. we have a Coppola-Estevez-Sheen connection there. Uh, then the one that blows me away because the, the, yes. the, the smallest of the greaser roles of the main sort of greaser family is a guy named Steve Randall mm-hmm. who's played by a young Tom Cruise. Yeah. And the crazy part is he's less important in the movie than he is in the book. And the book, he's not important. Yeah. So Cruise did not get a huge role in this movie. Yeah. Um, and, and again, it sort of shows you. So he's, th- you know, three years away from two or three years away from Top Gun, I think at this point. Yeah. Um, so it's, 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 it's very, it's very interesting. Like, like, like you would think, well, that's the big, he is the biggest star in this movie um, in terms of, you look at the totality of yeah. their career, but he is just part of this pack of young actors. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, the only other person on this title card, and it's very funny is uh, uh, Tim Shepard is played by Glenn Withrow. We'll do a deep dive on him. I have no idea who Glenn Withrow is yeah. at, at this moment. So it's funny. It's like everybody else here goes on to major careers and then Glenn Withrow. And it's funny too because the character of Tim Shepard, I I'm confused in a way why he's on the beginning credits. In a way it makes sense, but like he's in I think 3 scenes in the movie and in the book he's only in one part. My guess is this has to do with contracts and billing. Like Probably, like, yeah. Like like who this actor was and like that he to get to get him on, he got he got in that billing block. Yeah, because you're right. Like like I don't think of Tim Shepard as like a central character. Yeah, that he's way. really not, and he was made way more of a character in the movie. But still, like if you didn't know the book well, it would be like I don't know who this person yeah. is. Yep, yep. Okay, then we go to the the other part of this, which is the Soches. That's the the sort of rival group. Uh, so uh, first we have Cherry Valance, who is. Uh, the girlfriend of one of the socias, played by Diane Lane, major, major Hollywood superstar um, going forward. I gotta say, don't know who that person is. That's fine, but yeah. but but like <laughs> Diane Lane has a pretty great career. Yeah. Um, Bob Shelton is played by Leif Garrett, who is uh, a music star at the time. It's it's hmm. kind of uh, kind of interesting. Randy Anderson, uh, uh, played by Darren Dalton, don't know who that is. 
there nobody else here as I'm going down this list are people that are worth mentioning. Yeah. Uh, except for Buck Merrill is played by Tom Waits, who's another musician. Um, so it's it's like there is there is a lot there is the casting here is off the charts. Yeah. Now again. At the time, these were young, up-and-coming actors, but there was no certainty that any of them were actually going to become anything big, nor who was going to become the biggest stars. I mean, if I'm going through this list, um, Cruz is number one, probably Swayze number two, uh, Estevez three, and then like Low Machio. Uh, I don't know if you know where you put Matt Dillon in there. Like, like it's it's yeah, it, but 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 those are like mega mega star names okay mm-hmm. so we have this this long credit sequence while the stevie wonder song is playing introducing you to these names which is more fun to watch now than it would have been even then yeah because now you're just like i can't believe i'm gonna get to see the baby versions of all of these kind of major <laughs> hollywood hollywood actors uh so behind all of this the photos are changing so we get this photo of the greasers standing together and these are kind of like they're like black and white photos if you turned up the contrast and had only the black and then you dropped out all of the white. So that's just the gold kind of sunset yeah. behind them. Um, then we see a photo of the greasers after the rumble. So this is actually a shot from the movie, um, right? The after the rumble shot, I think. That, might I think, be, yeah. I think that shot comes from the movie. Then we see things like we see a freight train. Trains are going to play an important role in this mm-hmm. movie. We see another freight train and we sort of see the flat Oklahoma uh, country landscape. We see a, we see images of like a, like a small town water tower with a railroad crossing, a little row uh, row of houses, yeah, small houses with a railroad crossing. Then we see a small town main street, another small town main street, but we see a bigger building in the background. And then our last picture is kind of a, uh, or uh, like a the skyline of a. Uh, town and we see a couple bigger buildings in the mm-hmm. background and then like a main street so it's it's sort of like we're seeing which is going to be part of this this story both sides of town right yeah and and we're going to see that it's divided literally by the train you know the mm-hmm. sort of the quote-unquote wrong side of the tracks is yeah. where the greasers are going to be from um it's also kind of interesting because in the other version of the movie the original one most of those pictures are there except for the pictures of the people. Right. Those aren't there. Right. Which is weird because those in a way are like the most important meaningful pictures because it shows you the characters. Yeah. I, I I wonder though, like if he adds this in, in 2005 kind of to highlight, like, isn't this cast kind of crazy? Yeah. Like I, I really do think that, that that's what it is. And, and now the, the, this credit block in, of the movie in, uh, in 1983 is similar but not the same they redid the credits which they didn't really have to but they redid the yeah. credits for the complete novel um, so I think that's maybe one of the things that they're highlighting there so from there we fade to black and as the music fades we start to hear some now some sort of sounds natural to the world we're going to be in so we hear a dog barking we hear a train whistle in the distance mm-hmm. so again we're getting this train imagery already and we fade in on pony boy curtis as you've already told us this is going to be our main character he's the the book is lit written through his point of view through his eyes and he's sitting in his room at his desk and we see the golden sunset light f- kind of f- Fil- filing into his room. Mm-hmm. It's actually a really pretty shot. This yeah. is like a golden it, hour a, shot. It's a nice yeah. shot. Yeah. Um, and he opens up a, the notebook on his desk 
uh, and he starts writing. Uh, the page already has on it in quotes the title "The Outsiders," um, and he starts to write. Uh, and and so the voiceover as he's writing gives us what is the opening line of the book, which is, uh, "When I stepped out into the bright sunlight from the darkness of the movie house, I had only two things on my mind: Paul Newman and a ride home." Um. I really like that they started the movie like this by showing him starting to write it because then it links it back to the end. And I also think it's interesting in the non-extended cut. So they start with this scene, then do the credits, then go to a different scene because they cut out the beginning because they want you to not notice that what he's writing then isn't what happens. Exactly. Where in this version, what he's writing is what happens. We then, we, we then move into, we actually move into yeah. the story he's telling. Yeah. So I think I think that's a really, that's really worthwhile. And, and also when he, in the 1983 cut, it cuts out before he even finishes that sentence. Yeah. Right? Because doesn't it cut out after movie house? Like when I stepped out into the bright light of the movie house- I think yeah. it kind of ends there, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't talk about the Paul Newman and a ride home, yeah, which are gonna which are gonna end up uh, to be meaningful here. So, um, so he says this, and we start to hear uh, Jerry Lee Lewis's "Wild One" playing in the background. Now, this is an important uh, thing as you're if you've seen the 1983 Outsiders mm-hmm. and you're watching the 2005 for the uh, cut for the first time is one of the big changes that I think makes this movie is the role that music plays. Now, when we watched this, the 83 version with your mom, what was her biggest comment that she said? She was talking about how she didn't like the score because it wasn't like songs from that period. It seemed really weird. And in the the extended cut, it is songs from the 60s, and it's not what it is in the other version, which is like this big orchestral score, which is supposed to be um, kind of off of the score from Gone with the Wind because that's a book that the main character Ponyboy will read in the movie and in the exactly, Outsiders. Exactly. And, and another piece of this, as we're talking parent and child here, um, the, that score was written by Carmine Coppola, who's Francis Ford Coppola's father. And even at the time, Coppola was like, I don't know about this, <laughs> but he didn't feel like he could tell his father, can we not do this as much? And importantly, when the 2005 cut, cut comes out, this is after Carmine Coppola has passed away. Yeah. So he feels freer saying, I'm going to take out big chunks of my dad's music. It's still in this, mm-hmm. but a lot less. And I'm going to add in a lot more period music. So so the fact that right away we jump into a, a, a period era song, I think the 83 cut has two period era songs and that's it. Yeah. Um, this has a lot more to it. This and, has a lot. And in the book, they talk about music. Yeah. Like they talk about the music the Greasers listen to versus the music the Socias listen to. So yeah. it is significant that we're going to hear someone like Jerry Lee Lewis. We're going to hear a lot of Elvis in this. Yeah. Like when we were watching the extended cut for the first time and on the captions, like it had the song and it said like it was an Elvis song. I got really excited. It's like, oh, they're actually going to do this right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we hear Jerry Lee Lewis and we see the exterior of the movie theater. Uh, now, the marquee says uh, Paul Newman in The Hustler with Gidget Goes to Rome. So these are two movies. So mm-hmm. he's clearly Pony Boy is seeing a double feature matinee because this is in the afternoon. Uh, the movie The Hustler came out in 1961 um, and uh, Gidget Goes to Rome 1963. So this movie is set in 1965. Mm-hmm. Um, so these are movies which, which would have been out. Now, interestingly... 
Um, the Hustler stars, stars Paul Newman. And in 1986, I think, um, Martin Scorsese, so this is after The Outsiders, makes a um, kind of spiritual sequel to The Hustler called um, The Color of Money, mm-hmm. which also stars Paul Newman now in the older character. Also, this is a movie about mm-hmm. pool sharks. And do you know who plays the uh, the young pool player in that movie? Mr. Tom Cruise. Wow. So so we have this connection oh. to the hustler. Um, I mean, Coppola can't know that. That movie isn't yeah. in the works yet, but uh, but that that's sort of coming there. So we see Ponyboy uh, step out, and he looks at his reflection in the store window and quotes a line from the movie, uh, from, from the movie The Hustler. He says, this is Ames, mister, and he kind of mimes shooting pool. So he's like imagining himself as Paul Newman. Yeah. Um, and behind, this is a kind of a cool shot. So he's, we're seeing him from behind and then his reflection in this mirror window. And then behind that, we see this sort of maroon Corvair pull up mm-hmm. um, be, behind him. Now, uh, in the book, what color is the Corvair? Do you remember? <laughs> You're like our book expert I've, on this. I was looking for this. It's red it in the It is red, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I... And it's, but it is the same kind of car. That's one thing I really like about this movie is they go down to like pretty specific details of like, we're going to have all the cars the same color. I was looking at some characters and like what they were wearing was the same color. Like it goes really into detail in some things, not in other things, but in a lot of visual stuff, like it's very true to the book. Yeah. So, so we have this, uh, this Corvair pull up behind him. Uh, and the kids in the car start insulting him about the grease in his hair. We see Ponyboy walk away as the car drives off. He walks by storefronts. There's like this, I was trying to figure out, it seems like an antique or yeah. junk store uh, that has all this writing on the windows in like, um, like, like, uh, what would you, um, it's like, like window chalk kind yeah. of writing window paint writing uh. and then and then it walks by and then there's like a chain link what looks like a vacant lot that's full of like old metal bed frames which i'm assuming is the stock for this antique junk store <laughs> yeah you know the things that they're selling um one thing right away here we get something that's different from the book um in the book he's walking home and the car doesn't pull up next to him until he says like almost two blocks from his house and then he starts like walking faster and trying to get away. Where in the movie, the car pulls up immediately and he seems less concerned about it, even though they follow him for a while. Well, they, but to be fair, in the movie, they drive off mm-hmm. and then they keep re encountering him, but it's not like they're slowly driving behind him. Yeah, but it's still like, it seems like it takes the a while. The third time the car start shows up, he should be concerned. I feel like the second time yes. the car shows up, he should be concerned. Like, he seems so much less freaked out yeah. than he is in the book. But that also tells you about, this is not a new occurrence for him. This is just... Yeah. So, so his response, it's important. His response is, put your hands in your pockets and just walk away. Like, don't... Yeah. You're, you're outnumbered here. Like, don't confront this, right? Um, so then we, we, we cut to him um, walking along the train tracks as a freight train passes by. Now, as somebody who lives by train tracks and walks by tra- walks along train tracks a lot, uh, did, did you feel like <laughs> spiritual connection with Pony Boy here? A little bit. I did, because I walked I walked by trains all the time. Um and the on so as he's walking along the trains, there's an overpass, and the Sosha's car um, are is up on the overpass, and they're like throwing trash down at him, 
Yeah. And he throws something back at them. I was trying to figure out what they're throwing at him. Because, it okay, it seemed like he threw a stick or something, which would make sense. But what they were throwing was really confusing me. I watched that scene over and over again trying to figure out what it is. It's like paper and maybe like, I'm wondering if it's like beer cans or beer bottles. Yeah, I don't know. That would it's... that would seem in fitting with sort of the, the tone of this. Mm-hmm. Um. So then we see him walking up a dirt road. So now he's clearly closer to home. He's kind of tossing a ball up up and down in his hand. Um, we see the car come from behind and start to race towards him. And at this point, he starts kind of jogging a little bit. Now, this is interesting to me because one of the things we know about Ponyboy as book readers is, is Ponyboy a fast runner? Yeah, he... Is um, a track star. Yeah, he's like one of the best people on the track team. So he... Sh- and like... In the movie, he's, like, he can basically see his house at this point. He should just be in a dead sprint. They're trying to run him over at this point. Yeah. And also, and He's kind like, of shuffling his feet. And it's get like, to the side of the pony. road, too. Like, get out of the way. <laughs> yeah, so so maybe that's a little bit of an own goal for Ponyboy. But they are harassing yeah. him. Um, and so, uh, we, so now he starts to kind of start jogging a little bit. The car keeps pursuing him, pulls up in front of him and blocks his way. And we see five Soshas jump out of the car. One of them pulls like a switchblade knife out uh, and says, we're going to give him a haircut. Mm -hmm. So they wrestle him to the ground and they cut a piece of his hair off so that the hair is is a big thematic thing in this. Like that's an identity thing for the greasers. They wear their hair differently. We're told that the Sosha, in the book, we're told the Soshas have like beetle haircuts right yeah because that's what and that's the music that they mm-hmm. like where the um the greasers have longer hair that they put a lot of grease in and comb back like so it's like that's yeah. like one of their identity things so they make fun of their hair they're also like you know threatening to cut their hair because that's yeah sort of cutting off their identity um so Ponyboy gets manages to wrestle away, but they grab him, get him back on the ground, and pin him to the ground, and then they pull the switchblade again, mm-hmm. and they threaten to slit his throat, right? They're kind of moving the knife along his throat, and the second time they go through, they actually cut him a little bit, and they draw blood. Yeah. Um, so Ponyboy starts to yell, and they grab a, a handkerchief, and you can see a little bit of blood on the handkerchief like from the cut, and they start to shove it into his mouth to quiet him. Yeah. And that's our five minutes. (laughs) So I went through and compared this to what happens in the book. And I wrote like kind of detailed stuff on how it's different. So in the book, when they get out of the car, they like surround him. And there's actually like one of my favorite lines, just because in a way I found it funny. I don't think it's supposed to play off as funny, but I just, it's funny to me. The guy, one of the socials pulls out a switchblade and says, like, oh, do you need a haircut? And he just says no and then backs into the person behind him. Um, They cut that out, which in a way makes sense. Um, But then something I really didn't like was that in the book, they get him, they get him down immediately because it's five against one. They hit him a couple of times, then they kind of cut his throat. And in the movie, it's like, They get him down and then he gets up quickly, which seems weird because one of the things about his character is like he doesn't like fighting. He's not a fighter. It's not something he seeks out. So it feels like he shouldn't be as good. So he shouldn't like get away. But in the book, that does happen in the book because I read this this morning as well. In the book, they do kind of grab him 
rough him up a little, and he does get away, and they catch him again. That does happen in the book. I didn't. I'm pretty sure. I read this this morning. I know you have the book in front of you. This is a minor point to argue about, but I, the thing that struck me was I had done the notes on this, and then when I reread it, I thought, oh, that actually follows kind of what happens there. I think he struggles and gets away for a second, and then they pin him down. Yeah, but in the in the movie, he like gets fully up. Sure. Okay. Gets a couple steps away. Yeah, that's how they're interpreting the text. Yeah. I'm gonna give I'm gonna and give then, them a pass on that. Another thing that they changed was when he first starts yelling, they put a hand over his mouth and he bites the person's hand and then they put the cloth down his throat. And I kind of liked that more in the book because it's like he's kind of trying more. Like he's actually going to try and fight back a little bit more. Um, But in a way, I get why they didn't put that in the movie because it's kind of... I think that's harder to depict. Yeah. 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 I would say... say if you were rating this, so so this is going to be a regular segment. You're going to kind of do a mm-hmm. little little book breakdown. If you were rating this on a scale of one to ten in terms of accuracy to the book, how does this segment stack up? Okay, it's hard because since you have the credits, there's a lot less to go off of. So yeah, it's. I mean, it really is. Yeah. About two minutes. <laughs> Ooh. Okay. It's hard because like comparing it. Like, when we're going to go on and do other five minutes, this score, if I were to go back, would probably change, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, But it was. This has got to be high. Yeah, I would say probably like a seven or an eight, because it's like, it is off of just two minutes, and they do change the, like, they come up to him right away. He seems less panicked about it. Sure. Um, They do change stuff like that, but ultimately, like, a lot of the dialogue is pretty much what's said. Mm hmm. And a lot of, like, what happens, like, even he goes through, like, where the socias are around him when they pin him down. And it's pretty accurate to what it is in the movie. Yeah, like, yeah. and the guy who pulls out a knife is wearing the same color that he is in the book. Yes. Like, it's very true in those senses. So, okay. So, you, you were saying 7.5. I want to know because I'm going to keep track of this. Yeah. I love to keep score on things. So, 7.5 <laughs> for the first five minutes. Um, so another segment we're going to do, and this is something I'm excited about, is each episode I'm going to do a deep dive on something that we've encountered in the episode or something connected to the outsiders. So I was thinking about for the first episode, there's kind of two natural people to potentially do. I'm going to start with, I think, the real the real hero of this story, and that's S.E. Hinton. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've already talked a little bit about her. Um, she started writing the book The Outsiders in 1965 uh, at the age of... 15, and it's published when she's 18 in 1967. Now, she based this book on rival gangs in her Tulsa, Oklahoma high school that were called the Greasers and the Socias. So, like, mm-hmm. she is, um, she is, this is not an imagined world for her. This, she is, this is, you know, the world that she sees around her. Um, and clearly, she herself is coming from probably more of a, I assume, more of a Soch perspective because what she wanted to do was to write empathetically about the greaser. So I, mm-hmm. I actually don't know, um, but I assume she's, and maybe she's more like in kind of neither of those yeah. worlds. I don't know. Do I you? actually, so in the copy of the book I have, there's like an interview with her in the back. And I will say right now, the last time I read this was two years ago, but <laughs> this is what I remember from it is that she she was a tomboy and a lot of her friends were the were greasers but 
um she also had friends who were socialists so she like understood both sides and she also she tells the story about how like she didn't really think of her friends as greasers until she was walking with them and a car pulled up and someone yelled greaser at them and then she like all of a sudden saw them in a different light and realized like oh these are who these people are and like realized it about them yeah so 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 that's that i'm guessing a story like that really is her inspiration for writing this which mm-hmm. is to say like how can I take this group of people who are marginalized in my community and and um, try to write empathetically about them, but write about the tensions of them and write about maybe what it feels like to feel trapped in this kind of world? Um, also, in this same kind of section in the book, she talks about how she started writing it. And there's um, she talks about how one of her friends, actually, like someone who she knew was... G- walking home from a movie got jumped for no reason and then she went home and was really upset about it started writing a short story and then it turned into this that's cool so like the beginning is actually like she's just writing about something that happened to her and then it just turned into something else that that i love that (laughs) so this book is uh wildly wildly successful this has sold more than 14 million copies Mm -hmm. which um as far as books go, that's a lot of books. Yeah. So if you you know if you figure as the author, you're getting you know a a percentage of that. Um, so just just this one book alone, uh, I mean, imagine being a 18 year old and writing something that's this successful and that continues to be successful. So this is um, like you said, this is a book that works its way into the curriculum of middle school. So like I said, we're 30 years apart, but you know, both of our middle school, junior high experiences, we were very much aware of this book, whether we read it or mm-hmm. not. So so it becomes kind of canonical in that way. Now, the reason she goes by S.E. Hinton is because her publisher told her that she should go by her first initials because, um, and now again, this is in the late 60s, that that the publisher was afraid people would dismiss the book without reading it, seeing that, you know, that it was um, written by a woman that they mm-hmm. might think like, oh, this is, you know, this, you know th- that, that that somehow would diminish it. So so for her first book, she went by S.E. Hinton. Um, and then she decided as in her further books to continue doing that. Her name is uh, Susan Eloise Hinton. Mm-hmm. Um, in part because she's a really private person and she's like, S.E. Hinton is the person who writes these books. And... Susan Eloise Hinton is this private person who, yeah. you know, like, like, so she says she can kind of separate herself from that. And then she could also using the, the, the name S.E. Hinton um, would add some cachet to, to future books that she wrote. Um, so she's regarded as really one of the creators of what we would think of as the YA genre, the young adult mm-hmm. fiction genre, which, you know, in the last 20 years has become this huge, huge market. She helps to create that in the 1960s, um, starting with The Outsiders. But she writes uh, five young adult novels in her life, and four of them were adapted as films. Mm-hmm. So The Outsiders, she writes in 1967, which becomes this 1983 film. She then writes a follow-up to The Outsiders, which ac- which is actually sort of a sequel. It has some – there is some crossover, yeah. like at least in the world of. Yeah. There's three characters who cross over. Um, there is Ponyboy, Tim Shepard, and Tim Shepard's brother, Curly Shepard. Mm-hmm. Ponyboy is in one chapter, doesn't play a huge role, and he's mon- mentioned once at the end. Mm-hmm. Tim Shepard and Curly Shepard 
play big roles, but in the Outsiders, Tim Shepard's in one part, and Curly Shepard's only is mentioned. Only talked about. Yeah, yeah. only so, talked so, about. So it's a sequel in that it is it is a continuation in this world. Yeah. Right. So and that book is called That Was Then, This Is Now. So that she publishes that in 1971. That becomes a movie in 1985. Um, her third book, Rumblefish, from 1975. Uh, is also made into a movie by Francis Ford Coppola, also in 1983. So Coppola puts out two Essie Hinton movies in 1983. Mm-hmm. And I believe Matt Dillon stars in both of them. He does. He, he does. does. Um, and then she also, ha- uh, in 1979, wrote a book called Tex, which was the first of her books adapted into uh, uh, into a movie in 1982. So, um, so writes these five young adult novels, four of them become movies. Um, she actually appears in The Outsider, so mm-hmm. we'll get to this scene much, much later. Yeah. She's she's a, a nurse um, in one of the scenes towards the end of the I film. she has one line. Yes. And uh, The Outsiders, as we said, it, it, it becomes this canonical YA book. It becomes part of the curriculum to a point where your whole class read it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also a book that's often challenged. Yeah. Um, so it's it's controversial. So I was looking at something and in the in the 1990s like the some sort of school librarians association made a list of the most challenged books of the 1990s mm-hmm. um, and this was on that list of the top 100 most challenged books you know in part uh, and this is a, according to what i read because it portrays um, gang violence underage smoking and drinking strong language family dysfunction things like that which you know i you know maybe i'll put my cards on the table like the point that like all those yeah. things are kind of the point of the book that that this that this is this other world and it's this world that you know in some ways traps some of these kids mm-hmm. and and be, or becomes the hallmark of some of these kids and it's also the world of the socias because it's actually the socias who we see have in some ways more of an issue with yeah some fa- some a different kind of family dysfunction a different kind of substance abuse problem in terms of their drinking and things like that but that cuts in both directions it's also interesting too because like i recently was looking at some like different kind of banned books and the outsiders is one of them in some places and so many banned books and especially for the outsiders i feel like it's banned because people either didn't read it or didn't get it like they were just told this is what's in it it's kind of like this list of like there's gang violence and smoking and drinking but like they didn't get the ending because at the end there's like a very clear call to action of like people have these bad lives and there needs to be ways to reach out and help them so i feel like then you're really missing the point of it yes and that's often the case with people who are um, you know, talking about uh, censorship and things mm-hmm. like that is the targets of those things are often miss. People are missing the point of those. Yeah. So Esme, uh, we've kind of made it to the end of this episode. I want to close every episode uh, by giving out an award. Uh, so an award for who won this five minutes of the movie. So who won the five? So I have um, five nominees that I'll give mm-hmm. you and then we can decide. And if you want to add anyone to this list, Again, most of this is credit, so it's kind of tricky. <laughs> um, so here are my five uh, five nominees. I have Francis Ford Coppola for bringing this movie to the screen and particularly for recutting it in 2005 mm-hmm. and making this the movie that 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 it is. 
Um, I have Stevie Wonder, who is the singer and uh, co-writer of the song Stay Gold. Whether you like the song or not, it is the bulk of this five minutes is listening to Stevie Wonder sing Stay Gold. Uh, likewise, Carmine Coppola, who is, uh, wrote the music for Stay Gold um, and Wonder writes the lyrics. Uh, the only actor I have in here is C. Thomas Howell because Ponyboy Curtis is really the central character mm-hmm. of the action of this. Um, and then I have one other person I put on here, uh, and that is uh, Janet Hershenson. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Janet Hershenson is the casting director of this movie. <laughs> Again, most of this this five minutes was credits, and we went through how insane the cast is of yeah. this. Um, I kind of want to give it to her. I really, I, think, do too. I really think she's the winner of this because this the, the credit sequence is a celebration of look at this crazy young cast that we got. And like it would be impressive even now of having all these famous actors, but then it's like they weren't famous then, and this person was able to recognize like no, they're gonna do well. Not only would it be impossible now, it would be so expensive now yeah. because. I'm sure these the none of these people were making much money, you know, because they weren't, you know, big name actors at this time. But if you were to take all of their quotes now for what it would take to put them into a movie, like it would be such an expensive yeah. movie. Not to mention that not all of these people are alive <laughs> anymore. Mm-hmm. But even if you were to go back to like the year 2000 and do this, it would be so unbelievably expensive yeah. to make this movie uh, in terms of that. So that is who wins the five. Mm-hmm. Uh, Janet Hershenson, the casting director. I'm not sure she's going to get another five win out of this. Uh, maybe when we get to the end credits, we can circle back to her and say yeah. one more tip of the hat to her. But uh, she's the winner of the inaugural five. Um, Esme, this was very, very fun. Yeah. Um, we will be back next week to talk about uh, minute five to minute 10 of the mm-hmm. movie. We get a lot more action. I, I've, I've, I've watched this part already to, to prep for it. I'm really excited to talk about this. We're really going to get into the meat of the movie at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, we'll be back next week with another episode of Stay Gold. <laughs>